Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. This week on Soul of the Nation, we have a very special offering. It's an address delivered by the very Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas, whose work and career sit at the important intersection of black and womanist theology. The Center on Faith and Justice at Georgetown, where I am founding director, invited Dr. Douglas to speak on March 1st, a day that lies at the intersection of Black History Month and Women's History Month. The title of her powerful address was Toward a More Just Future, Expanding Our Moral Imaginary Beyond the White Gaze. Thanks for listening, and as always, blessings to you and blessings upon the soul of the nation. You don't have to dig deep uh, and far to know that when this nation talked about the city on the hill, if you will, that this notion was that they were carrying forth this vision of these Anglo-Saxon forebears, that they were building this sort of perfect sort of legacy of this Anglo-Saxon heritage is they believe these people carried forth this special virtue uh, to, and this special love for justice and freedom. So I, I'm not going to go through all this. So just to affirm, yeah, you're right, but here's the other thing. And I talk about this often. I talk about it almost as the warring soul of the nation. Just as that was there and it was deeply rooted, Thomas Jefferson was uh, Anglo-Saxonist par excellence and, and all of uh, those guys, those, those founding fathers. But they also, I don't know, maybe by accident, I don't know, but they did give, put forth a vision for a nation where there would be freedom and justice for all. I say that's the sort of rumblings of our soul. There's this vision that, as Lincoln said, calls us to our better angels. And I know Lincoln did not believe in black equality. But somehow, (laughs) they were able to set forth a vision for a true democracy, no matter how limited that vision was for them. It was a vision. That's the vision that we have to, we have to make the decision if we're gonna live into that vision, which is the vision of our better quote unquote angels, or we are going to live into, well, the worst of who we were and could be. So that, you see, I think, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name. Kesley. Kesley, that, that's the hope of the nation, right? It's warring soul, deciding who we want to be. And here's the thing that we know. We have always had a history, just as you've had this other history that we know so well, you have always had a history, a movement of a people who have always struggled to live into and make that vision a reality. That's what the 1619 Project tells us. And there are other stories like that, right? Here's what I always say. 
And it's what gives me hope. Then I'll shut up. And I've written about this. Some of you might have heard me say before, written about it, that we come from a people, I come from a people, who were enslaved people. I knew my great-grandmother, who was born into slavery. When I think of her, her name was Mama Mary. When I think of her, I think of those people like her who were born into slavery, died in slavery, never ever breathed a free breath, never ever imagined that they would breathe a free breath. But guess what they did? They fought for freedom anyhow. They fought for freedom that they knew they would not see, but that they knew would become a reality. They fought for freedom that was the freedom that was the justice of God. And they were able to fight for that freedom because they knew that. And they fought for it because there was a vision of this nation getting a little bit closer to that justice was the justice of God. But for them fighting, those enslaved people doing it, you and me wouldn't be standing here talking. They fought for the children they could not see. That's to me, is the hope of the nation. And the hope of that nation is in that vision that people have refused to just not fight for, right? So. Thank you. Hello, um, my name is Michelle. I am from South Africa and I go to the Georgetown campus in Qatar. Yeah. You mentioned that you are a womanist and in fact last semester we're studying a lot of the work of James Coons and many other yes. uh, liberation theologists who write about this. And my question has to do with being a black woman because we sit particularly in the intersection of race and gender and we have both the white gaze and the male gaze looking upon us. And my question is to what extent is the white and male gaze, white and male epistemology, and white and male imaginary shaped by an ontologically white and male Jesus? Oh, yeah, well. <laughs> you have been studying that theology. <laughs> Very good question, because here's what we know. Because it is, right? Because here's what we know. There's always been a sacred canopy that has legitimated that gaze. Yeah. Right? Always been. There has, you know, in Christianity, as the sort of religion of those in power, has been that provided more times than not that canopy to legitimate that gaze. And one of the ways in which it has done that, there are many ways in which it's done that, but I want to get to your white Jesus, <laughs> is it has done that by, well, whitenizing Christianity. Because right? here's what we know. Jesus is not white. 
Well, I'm sorry. Jesus is not white. That, but that's what we know. <laughs> and Jesus is not white, not only theologically, but literally. <laughs> right? You know, we say that's historically incorrect, let alone theologically incorrect. Jesus was a Jew. We might say a Palestinian Jew. That's who he was. So let's just first say who he was, right? So he wasn't white. And so how did he get, how do we get these blonde hair, blue eyed Jesuses? That's just not right. It's not just not correct. Mm -hmm. Secondly, theologically it is incorrect. Because to, well, let me start, let me just say the center thing. In the Christian faith tradition, at the center of Christian faith is a daggone cross. That's a crucifixion. Now, if we're going to be Christian, we need to take that seriously. And that Jesus was crucified means that Jesus entered into utter, uncompromising solidarity with the crucified classes of people of his day, those on the underside. Those people who in this world would be race black. That's where the, he, he came. His first public speech was, I came to set the oppressed free. And as black preachers like to say in the church, he was born in a manger, not in Herod's palace. So theologically, if we are to say, where were we going to see Jesus today? Well, we're going to see Jesus in the face of, 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 of a George Floyd. We're going to see Jesus in the face of the little kids on the border uh, being, being uh, shipped around all over uh, the country where there's no room for them in the end. That's where we're going to see Jesus. So theologically and historically and literally, that it, to call Jesus white, to image Jesus as white, is blasphemous and is historically inaccurate. <laughs> and so yes to your question. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, my name is Zaina. I'm Hi, in, Dana. Uh, I'm an econ major, and I'm also on the Qatar campus. Ah. Um, so I'm Palestinian, and I'm really interested in the intersectionality and the solidarity between Amer uh, black people in America and also Palestinians under the occupation, and especially when we look at mothers. So for us under the occupation, mothers are very almost underrated and very forgotten about because people don't talk about how much of a struggle it is to stay at home mm -hmm. and resist from the home even if you're not out on the street. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in why you based your speech and narrative around that mother's dream. So why did you choose that? Yeah. Yeah, thank you uh, for your question and for that witness and you're right mm -hmm. and I affirm uh, what you said because I'm a mother, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and I do know, and even if I weren't a mother, but that's, I am. But I know that women shoulder the burden. And yet women are expected, even as they shoulder the burden, to carry the load. Mm -hmm. 
And we know most often, don't we, that it's women of color. I mean, I look at this country. You know, I, I, I like to say, look at the last, you know, couple of elections around here. Black women done <laughs> saved this democracy again. <laughs> uh, but because mothers care, and mothers and women, you're right, they're ignored. Their, their resistance, it doesn't have to be a resistance. The street is ignored, right? Holding up, trying to, even, even those that are mothers, just try, help. what do you do? I mean, the world you're fighting for is the world for your children and other people's children. And so that's why I, I, I center my story. I'm a mother. And, the, and being a mother gave me an even deeper, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but an, an urgency, an even deeper urgency, and a deeper understanding of the, the sin that is really, really, I think, betraying not simply the lives of our children, but the humanity of all our, of our children. And I say that the freedom for our children saves your children's humanity. So that's why I don't know any other way to answer it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Hi. I'm Ollie Henry, they, them pronouns. I'm a junior in the college studying government and women and gender studies. Great. And first off, thank you. You truly mm -hmm. preach like poetry and it is such mm -hmm. a blessing to be able to hear you speak. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, I have the privilege of doing reparations work on campus and student organizing around that. And one thing that I've encountered is how reparations work and racial justice work are siloed. There isn't conversation between the two. Bureaucratically, they exist as two separate entities. So in thinking of that fractioning within our institutions and similarly within our own bodies, how does that fractioning further that white imaginary that institutions like Georgetown is founded on? And arguably more importantly, how can we move beyond that white imaginary when everything is so fractioned off? Yeah, what a, what a great observation and, and a good question. And you can't when, as you say, things are so fractioned off. And, and, and I like the way you speak of it even because that, what, what that creates, and even within ourselves, right, is this, we can't become whole, right, uh, to, uh, in the complexity of, of who we are. And so you can't. And if reparations work is truly reparations work, then it, it cannot be done from the top down. Mm -hmm. It has to occur from the bottom up. You've got to the people who are most impacted in the, in, in, by the legacy in which they carry in their bodies and in their souls, those people have to be at the table. And those people have, to, those voices I've taught, have to be heard. They're the people that know. You know, it's sort of like going, you hear these stories all the time. You know, missionaries going and 
uh, bringing people, I don't know, fish. And they're like, you don't need no fish. That ain't what we need. And when we hear this talk of reparations, the people that are talking about what reparations are going to look like are the people who are carrying the legacy that have gotten us to this daggone place in the first place. They are not the people that ought to be telling us what reparations look like. Because what we, what we have discovered that what is happening is that they are, I don't see any real institutional change. I'm not talking about Georgetown, uh, but nothing's really changing. Those same people are still in power. Mm-hmm. Right? So they, why? they're going to tell me what reparations looks like in a way that is going to protect yeah. who they are mm-hmm. and protect their status. Right. You know, give scholarships and all that. Well, why don't we change the reality that have forced us into this position to have to give little trickle down scholarships? So. So can't happen. So that's that. Yeah, I say that to my church. I say that. So I'm just saying, no, no, no. The, the, why in the world is the enslaver telling me what it means to be free? My God. Mm. And that's what's happening here in these little conversations about reparations. Thank you. Um, hi. Um, Hello. First of all, thank you so much for coming here and speaking to us today. Um, it's an honor to have you here. Oh, and thank you. Um, yeah, uh, my name is Priscilla. I'm a freshman in the School of Foreign Service. Um, oh, and I have, um, and I care a lot about criminal justice reform. And so um, I, I have two kind of questions. So first, um, in our nation, in this nation where um, when there's people who, like, there's an increasing opposition towards things like critical race theory and sometimes people are, um, uncomfortable or unwilling to listen, um, how do you recommend, first of all, engaging with those people and approaching them? And second of all, do you have any recommendations on how to combat disillusionment um, with mm-hmm. racial inequality, especially when it's so ingrained and syst- system- systemic? Yeah, thank you, Priscilla. Yes, thank you uh, for your question. Uh, and thank all of you because your questions that you all are here. <laughs> I'm Susan, you keep saying, how do we combat, what do we do? You're doing it. Mm-hmm. You're pre- and I'm serious about your presence here is a witness that you want it to be different. And you are engaging and willing to engage and you don't have to agree with everything I say at all, don't. Uh, t- but you are, you are engaged, you've put yourself in these spaces, and they may be uncomfortable spaces for some of you, to try to hear and learn and and ask these questions because you want it to be different. And so first, I I am the one that's honored to be here, and I thank you for being here, and I mean that. So how how do you, one, you said, engage with those people that, um, well, don't agree with you, right? Here's what I say. Yeah, we have to find ways to talk across uh, these quote-unquote divides. There have to be sort of rules of engagement. And my first rule 
of engagement, not primary rule, is that you have to respect me hmm. as a sacred human being. If you don't respect me, we can't talk. Which means that you gotta respect others. We, then we can't talk. Hmm. Then perhaps <laughs> we can talk. And I know for some of you, this is not an abstract question because you go home to communities, you go home to dinner tables, perhaps, of you're here and your, your, thing, your knowledge and your experiences and all of these are being expanded and you go home to places where you're finding yourself in more uncomfortable spaces, even in your own communities and, and even at your own homes. And how do you do that? Right, work. One, respect. But there's got to be, find that place, <laughs> and I mean this, where there is some place of agreement and move from there. And if you can't find that, then maybe it's not the right time for that conversation. Hmm. But try to find that place of agreement. Sometimes for me, I have people in my own family that we disagree on issues about people's humanity. And I simply go back to my rule and I ask them, do you want someone to withhold that from you or your child? And they invariably say no. And that's a place to begin the conversation. The other, you asked a question about, what was your second question? Um, yeah, in terms of, I guess, um, like changing the system. Oh. Um, um, when it's, I guess, when progress seems hard or very slow, do you have any um, tips or advice on how to, um, I guess, stay in the fight and keep? Um, no, you know what? The hope is in the protest. And the hope is in the, res the resistance. And you don't know, you don't, you can't always see, as I said earlier in there, you can't always see what the consequence will be. Yeah. Right now I'm teaching a course uh, at Union Theological Seminary with another professor, Dr. Sarah Azaransky, and we're teaching a course on Bayard Rustin and Pauli Murray. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, both Pauli Murray was the first black female priest. Pauli Murray uh, was a priest, activist, lawyer. Pauli Murray was soul world uh, that others uh, couldn't see. And Pauli Murray always said that I, I, I want a world really where Pauli Murray can exist. Pauli Murray was uh, African-American, but of mixed heritage. Polly Murray was also uh, 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 gender non-conforming and didn't have, then didn't have the language and all of that for it. And then there was Bayard Rustin, right, who's, uh, without Bayard Rustin, there'd be no March on Washington, there'd be no many things. But here's what both of them said, and, 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 and that is that you don't know 
what the sort of consequences and when you'll see the consequences of your struggles toward justice, right? But you do know and you do see what the consequences are of injustice. Those you do know. And so you just continue on the road toward, as, as Bayard Rustin would say as a Quaker, of going toward the truth. And you don't know, but you do know what it looks like when you don't. And that's, that's all you can do. And, and you know in your space, <laughs> right, that you are working toward that better place and making it better in your little corner of the garden. And I always say, and I'm going to end, end here with this, don't anyone think I'm always hopeful. <laughs> I've written about that. That was what my last book was about, this deep moment of despair. Just where you are, it's like, oh my gosh, just this, this is futile. You know, I'm, I'm, I understood deeply the Afro-pessimists. The only thing that brought me out of my despair was I went down, I was during quarantine here because uh, they sort of bilocate between here and New York. I went down to Black Lives Matter Plaza. And I'm a germaphobe, and so for me to go down there in the middle of the quarantine, put on my mask, and I went down to the plaza because I was feeling that despair and the edge of hopelessness where W.E.B. Du Bois said, keep silent, keep not thou silent, O God. I heard those words and it's like, oh my God, keep not thou silent, O God. And when I went down there, I saw these people, young and old, uh, all colors, all ages, as I said, all uh, gender uh, identifications and sexual, I saw, I saw the diversity that is God's creation, all in the middle of a pandemic, mm. risking their lives mm -hmm. to protest that black lives matter. I saw the vision in that protest. It was going down there that gave me hope. Mm. So when you despair, mm -hmm. Make sure you get engaged somewhere in, in, in the struggle for justice and you'll find your hope. Thank you. Thank Priscilla. you so much. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you all.